Alrighty. And so as you guys know, we have been working on a series uh, and we're basically talking about how to live from the inside out or how to keep the fountain flowing. And one of the things that we've been talking about, uh, I, I made a similarity or similitude to uh, a turbine. And we were basically speaking, for example, uh, a hydroelectric plant. We were talking about how a dam works and it's basically water falls on a turbine which is a mechanical force, it spins the turbine, and as the turbine spins, electricity is produced. And we were comparing that to how the Spirit works in the believer, how God puts the Holy Spirit to live inside of a person, but there is something that that believer has to do, almost like that mechanical force that's being applied, to do what the Bible calls up, stir up the Spirit, or to awaken the Spirit within us, right? Or to revive the Spirit within us, stir it up, right? And as we get it going, or, or in those... Um, practices or disciplines that the believer has there's things that we do that get the spirit of god moving within us or we stir up the spirit within us and what that basically does is to enable the, the power of god and the life of god to become awakened in us right and to begin to flow out of us as a matter of fact uh, apostle paul he writes to his uh, son in in the spirit or his disciple timothy and and he says stir up the spirit or the gift of god that is within you that you receive by the laying on of hands. And so, uh, you know, Timothy was kind of down. He wasn't being so spiritual. There was people who were um, kind of looking down upon him because he was kind of a young guy leading a church, being a pastor, right? And they, he might have been discouraged. And Paul talks to him and says, hey, do your part. In other words, awaken the gift of God that is within you. Stir up the spirit within you so the life of God can flow through you. So we understand now, from everything that we've been talking about in the past few weeks, that there's a part that the Spirit of God does, which is producing that life, but there's a part that we got to do, and it's basically practice certain disciplines that get that moving and that feed that. And so some of those things that we already spoke on, the first one was reading the Word of God, right? Being uh, students of the Word of God and just eating it. We said it's like the fuel for the believer, or it's the food, and Jesus himself said that, God, that we live off every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That is the food of the believer. In other words, we have to feed ourselves with the word, right? And then we also talked about prayer and talked about how prayer is basically the digestion of that word. In other words, we receive and fill our stomachs when we read or we feel our spiritual being when we read. But the way we digest it and process the information and process the revelation is by prayer, is by being with the Holy Spirit and receiving discernment and direction and guidance and wisdom from the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, he, he, he kind of explains to us, reveals to us the word of the Lord. And then uh, we talked about last week about praise. You remember praise? And we talked about how praise builds up our faith, how praise is one of the ways we approach God, how praise uh, just awakens so many things in us and it allows us to achieve breakthroughs and, and just to, uh, you know, go into another realm, into another dimension. And so we talked about that last week. And today I want to talk to you about a fourth discipline. Uh, and that discipline is worship. Okay. What is it? Worship. Okay. And so uh, let's just go into that. But, you know, generally when we talk about worship, for most believers, we think it's the, the segment in the service where music is slow. Right? And so oftentimes we turn off the lights and we get a little more romantic, a little bit more mellow. And you're like, God, I love you. And we're like, oh, worship was insane. It was incredible. It really touched me. Uh, but worship is so much more than singing. Worship is so much more than slow music. You can worship to slow music, but in itself, slow music is not worship. Uh, and so today we're going to, I want to tell you what worship is. What's the right heart to worship? What worship is for? And when to worship, how to worship, okay? 
quote. So let's jump right into it. And so there's a, a segment in the Bible where our Lord Jesus Christ, he, he speaks on this. He's talking to a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. And we, we started the series with that story in particular. So you're kind of familiar with it. But Jesus, he meets this lady, a Samaritan woman. He starts speaking to her. Basically, a Samaritan was a woman who was a Hebrew, basically from the same uh, country or people uh, like Jesus. But the country split the north and the southern tribes and so some of them uh, stayed Jewish in other words they kept their adoration to God in the proper way and some got their adoration mixed or the way that they would seek God in a mixed way so she was Samaritan they used to worship different and Jews kind of kept the traditional way of worship so this woman goes to Jesus Jesus starts telling her about a new life and 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 how to find God right and uh, he wants to produce new life in her and they start talking on worship and I want to read to you something that scripture says on John 4 23 24 uh, and th this is Jesus speaking to her. He says, but the time is coming, and indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those that will worship him that way. For God is a spirit, and those who worship him most wor must worship in spirit and in truth. And so the context of this, they're basically having a conversation as to where to worship. And the lady is basically telling Jesus, well, our ancestors say you got to worship over here in this mountain where God showed up one time and where they used to present sacrifices. You Jewish, you guys basically say that you got to go to Jerusalem and you got to go into the temple and that's where you worship. But where is it that we worship? How is it that we worship? And Jesus' response to her is just out of the ordinary because it's not even answering the question. It's... it's, it's Almost totally different to what she's asking. She's like, so do we go do it in the mountain or do we go do it in the temple? And Jesus says, the time is coming. As a matter of fact, the time is already here. Where people who worship the Father will not worship at a temple or at a mountain or in a place or in a church. But where people are going to worship is in the spirit, which is in their inner being. And they will do it in truth. They will do it genuinely. And according to the truth. In other words, according to the word. So Jesus is kind of blowing her mind right there. For us, we kind of know this. But if you think about it, even though we know it, we don't apply it. What do I mean by this? Most of us think that when do we worship? When we go to church. And as a matter of fact, many people pick the church they go to based on the, on the level of worship experience that they think they have. As a matter of fact, modern churches are not calling their services services. They're calling it worship experience. And so, and, and I don't have anything wrong with the terminology. I, mean, I don't care. But what I do care is that we think, oh, the worship experience is better here. The worship is over here. Listen, worship is not the music. Worship is not the lights. Worship is not the experience in itself. Worship is the way you approach God. And Jesus says, it's not in a place. It's not because of the music or because of the light or the atmosphere. Worship is in the spirit. And it's in truth. That's the kind of worship that the Father seeks. He's not impressed by a better band or a worship band. Or if you do it to a soundtrack or if you do it a cappella. Those are not the things that are necessarily moving to God. When you're worshiping, what he's actually looking at is your heart. Is your spirit. He's looking at your, in your inner being. And that's what either pleases him or what he rejects. And so let's go, let's dive into that a little bit deeper. But one of the things you got to understand, the context of what Jesus was talking about, basically, before God didn't live in people. In the Old Testament, God used to live in a temple. The Spirit of God did not dwell in people. He used to dwell in the Holy of Holies. And so people thought that 
like God showed up in the mountain, so that must be where you encounter God. Or no, God shows up in the temple, so that must be where you encounter God. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't encounter God because of a place. It's not about the physical, it's about the spiritual. The place to truly encounter God is within. And this makes sense with everything that we've been talking about because he says it's not here or there, it's inside. Listen, it's not about the church you're going to. It's not about the service or how great they played today or maybe they sucked today or, you know, Nico, how was off or this guy was off. That's not what it's about. It's about what's your posture when you approach God? Are you conscious that he dwells inside of you? Are you conscious that he wants to speak to you, that he wants to guide you? Is your heart posturing the right way for you to have communion with God within? Because it's so easy to judge the outside things. But really... Is the inside things that truly matter. And so this is what Jesus is speaking about. And so one of the things that we got to understand is that worship, a lot more than what we do physically, has to do with the attitude, with our inner attitude, with the state of our being, with the way that we innerly approach the Lord. As a matter of fact, in what Jesus is saying, he says, for God is a spirit. And those that worship him must do so in spirit. You get that? God is a what? It's a spirit. And those that do so or do so must do so spiritually. So how do you do it spiritually? Now, I will tell you this, and I spoke on this last week. Everything that we do spiritually as human beings manifests physically. Okay. So in other words, what we do spiritually or innerly, eventually it will be noticed in the natural or in the physical realm. But not everything you do in the natural or in the physical necessarily came from something spiritual i'll give you an example if you go and give food to somebody or if you go help somebody it's not necessarily because you're the most kind-hearted person and you're loving and you just had the love of god and you shared you might have had a wrong intention you might have just wanted to attract some attention or look good or take a story on instagram for people to give you likes and so it's not a spiritual thing that you're doing although it is being manifested in the natural but if the love of God is in you, if there's kindness and there's mercy inside of you, you can't just say, oh, I'm so kind, I'm so merciful, and I just have, I'm so full of the love of God, but I did nothing. No, it has to manifest. How is it going to manifest? Well, you're probably going to do the same thing, but the motive was totally different. You get the difference? So not everything you do in the natural comes from the spiritual, but everything that is spiritual will manifest in the natural. You understand? Okay. So let's go into this. The first thing I want to do is, so, so Jesus says, you got to do it in spirit. In other words, it has to be from deep, from within, from inside. That's where you encounter God. And it has to be in truth. Two things about truth. Number one, it has to be genuine. It has to be real. In other words, it, it makes no sense to say, God, I love you. I love you. You're everything to me. When he's not, and you don't even care. Right? That's not genuine. So number one, it has to be genuine. But second, when it talks about truth, it's saying it has to be aligned to the word. In other words, it has to be biblical. I'll give you an example. A lot of people say, oh, I, 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 I give to the Lord. That's great. That's okay. Where do you give? No, I give to this old lady. That's where I give my tithes. Well, the Bible says bring him to my storehouse and to my house that there's food in my house. So even though I'm doing a godly thing, I'm not doing it the way that God is asking me to do it. You can't call the government and be like, yo, I paid my taxes, uh, I don't know, at Chuck E. Cheese. You'll be like, yeah, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, no, we use those for funding, the health care and, the, you know, all these things. And so where I'm going with this is it's not just doing a godly thing, it's doing it God's way. 
That's also in truth. Because a lot of people worship and they really put their heart into it, but they're just doing it the wrong way. They're not doing it the way that God requires. I'll give you an example. Have you seen devout believers, for example, Catholics? They'll light up candles. They'll bow. They'll kneel. They'll pray with faith and conviction, right? You see that? So is their heart in it? I believe so. I believe they're genuinely trying to worship. But they're worshiping the wrong way because the Bible says do not kneel to idols and to statues and, and to make altars of things, right? And so they're doing a good thing in a wrong way. Do you get the difference? And so to do it in truth has to do with the fact that it's genuine and it's pure, but it's also done in a godly way or in a biblical way. Now let's continue. It says, in spirit and in truth. But what was he referring to? Worship. Right? He's saying those that worship must do it in spirit and truth. So now let's define what worship is. And I'm going to give you a quick definition of worship. Uh, and then we'll go from there. But uh, a quick definition of worship. And it's a way to honor and obey God. It's an expression of love and surrender to Him. That is accompanied by submission to His word and to His will. I'll say it again. So worship is the way we honor and obey God. So it's an attitude first, then an action. It's an expression of love and surrender that is accompanied by submission to His Word and to His will. In other words, you cave in, you give in. Okay? So this that I'm saying is basically talking about an attitude first and an action later right said you love you surrender how do you show it you obey and so as i was telling you from what the lord jesus was saying the place is not the most important thing if you go to church every sunday or if you're in a band or if you do this that's not the most important thing it's really the attitude in which you approach god and in the attitude that you do things for god that's where true worship comes out of and so, worship has to come from a, from a place of purity, from a broken, from a contrite heart, from a heart that is absolutely convinced that it needs God. That's the, the proper place to worship from. You cannot worship like, oh, I'm just happy today. I'm going to worship. Well, that's the wrong place. But what if you're sad tomorrow? Oh, it's just the atmosphere is so good, man. And they just got it perfect. The lights are the perfect color and the flow, and you know, and the sound was great. So, well, what if tomorrow isn't? And you're going to worship. So your worship can't depend on those things. True worship and purest worship comes from, from a revelation, an inner revelation, where you know that you know that you know that you need God. And so I believe there's five conclusions or five things you need to arrive at to have pure worship i want to tell you what they are now i will say this i i'm going to make a similarity to a relationship with a person has anybody ever dated or liked somebody have you ever liked somebody go like this if you like somebody okay i thought you were weird i'm like what you know, like, you know i liked a few people throughout my life especially one my wife but i've liked a few people and uh I, i've noticed something when you start liking somebody if you don't do anything about it, nothing happens. You know, if you don't try to get their attention and if you don't get their number and, you know, you just kind of let it slip, 
You might have felt something initially, but it won't build into anything, right? It won't, nothing will come out of it. Why? Because you didn't pursue the thing. But there's other relationships where you, you know, you kind of meet somebody and you feel an attraction and you kind of approach the person and you feel like there's an attraction back and you start talking and maybe you get the person's number maybe you invite him uh, to go out or you hang out together and you start feeling something right if it's mutual if the feeling is mutual and you keep it up you keep investing into it eventually it would turn the like will turn into love that love, how do, how do you know? Or, or you say, oh, I love this person. How, what does it begin to feel like? You're like, I want to be with this person. At some point, it evolves to a point where you say, I don't want to be without this person. I need this person in my life. I can't picture my life without you. I need you. I want you. I love you. I'll do anything for you, right? It evolves. Did it start like that? You just see a person and be like, yo, I can't live without you. You're like, yo, you just met me. What are you talking about? You know, they, they even say that it's too dangerous, it's dangerous to say, I love you too soon. It has to be in the perfect moment. Because you might scare the other person away, like, yo, 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 I'm not ready for that. You know what I'm talking about? So where I'm going with this is, how do you build or how do you get to a place, into a consciousness that you need this person? That you cannot live without this person. That you want this person in your life. That everything is better with this person in your life. And even you go somewhere and you don't even enjoy because you're like, I wish you were here with me. It would be so much better. Right? How do you arrive to that point? Relationship. By spending time. By living experiences. By communicating. And by getting close. That's how you arrive at that place. Same thing with God. I believe there's five conclusions or, or five revelations that you need to have eventually to be a true worshiper the, the purest form of worshiper that you can be but to get there it just doesn't happen you know you don't wake up one day and say God I'm nothing without you but the more you spend time with God the more you experience God the more of his love and presence you bathe in you'll get to a point where you say God I'm nothing it's a revelation that the Holy Spirit produces in you the deeper you dive, the more into it you get. So you're not just going to be a great worshiper in spirit and in truth just because, oh, Lord Jesus is coming to my life. Okay, I'm a great worshiper. You're probably not. But if you start getting close, if you start spending time, if you, if you build relationship, if you begin to surrender. I'll give you an example. When I first met the Lord, I wanted to love Him. I just don't think I love them as much. And so I used to say, I used to pray this way, I used to say, teach me to love you the way you love me. I can tell you, I love God more today than I've ever loved him. To the point where I said, God, I, I'll, I'll live my life for you. Not only then, I even told him, I would even die for you. If he asked me to go somewhere and I knew it would cost me my life, I would probably do it. It would, you know, it would be tough, but I'd probably do it. I didn't start there. You know, I couldn't even stop drinking for God. I'm going to stop partying for God or having sex. You know, I'd be like, uh, you know. it's like, yeah, God's cool, but this is better. You know, I arrived to the point where I am because of relationship, because of what we've been building together, because uh, of the times that we shared. You get what I'm saying? And so what I'm, what I'm saying with this, if you want to be a true worshiper, you build it up. And you build it up by relationship. And so the closer you get to God, I feel like you're going to arrive at some conclusions. And I'm going to tell you what they are. Number one. You're nothing without him. 
Now, this is true for everybody, but that doesn't necessarily mean you feel that way or you think that. But Genesis 3 verse 19 actually says this. For you came from dust and you go back to dust. Without him, you're nothing but dust. God says, for you are made from dust and to the dust you will return. So what are you without God? Dust. You might not think that way right now because you're like, yo, I'm all that. I'm cute. I'm pretty. I'm rich. You know, I'm this. I'm that. I'm fly. Whatever it is that you think, whatever nonsense. Can I tell you, you're nothing without God. You couldn't even open up your eyes if it wasn't for God. You couldn't see if it wasn't for God. You couldn't get up out of bed if it wasn't for God. You wouldn't even be alive if it wasn't for God. Without God, you're nothing but dust. If God just removed the breath of life from you, you'd collapse. And if nobody buried you, you'll just disintegrate into the earth. You would decay and decompose. Without God, you're nothing but dust. And so I don't think you start at that conclusion, but I think the closer you get to God, you start realizing, God, all I am, all I have, any ability, any talent, I mean, even the fact that I'm alive is because of you. I need you even to breathe. I can't take you out of my life because I wouldn't be alive without you. You get what I'm saying? And so you kind of arrive to that revelation and to that understanding, to that level of surrender by getting closer to him. Number two, you realize that there's nothing you can do without God. You know, I've heard a lot of people say, I said, well, God is your provider. Is your, my provider? Hmm, if I don't go to work, well, sure, but who enables you to go to work? Who gives you the strength? Who gives you the energy? Who gives you the ability and the talent? And who could remove it from you in an instant? It's God. So without his enablement, there's absolutely nothing we could do. You know what I'm saying? He enables us to do the things that we do. So number one, I'm nothing without you. Second, I can't do nothing if it's not because of me. Therefore, everything that I do, I no longer glorify myself. I thank him for allowing me to do it. I'll give you an example. When you serve somebody and you help somebody, before you think like, oh man, I'm so good, I'm so nice, I gave up my time and I gave up some money and I went and I did, hmm, you know, I'm such a nice person. I did this for so-and-so. That's not pure worship. You're worshiping you. But in the measure that you get closer to God, you realize, God, thank you for allowing me to serve that person. Thank you for, man, even when I give somebody a ride, I'm not thinking about how nice I am because I gave him a ride. I'm thanking God that I have a car when he, other people don't have it. And I say, the only reason I can do it is because you gave me something. You understand? It's different. You realize, I couldn't do anything if it wasn't because of you. You know, I have had the opportunity to go to many nations and many places and bring blessing and finances and gifts and resources and medicine. And I see how a lot of people are like, hmm, I'm so good because we just went and gave away so much money. And in my mind, I'm just thinking, God, thank you because you put me in a place where I was blessed and I can bless other people. And I wasn't born in a place or in a situation where I'm so needy that others have to come. So I said, even giving is because he gave to me first. Going is because he put me in a place, in a family, in a position where I am able to do that. So it's none of my own glory. It's all because of his glory. You understand? And that's how you, and so you, you arrive to these conclusions the closer you are to him. Number three, you realize that nothing is worth it without him. That nothing that you do is worth it if it wasn't because of him. And what do I mean by that? That nothing's good enough. 
Like, I know we feel like we do good things. But the Bible says this, and I, and I want to read to you uh, 1 Corinthians 3.13, for example. It says, but on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. And the fire will show if a person's work has any value. I'll give you an example. Imagine you had a lot of jewels. Who has some jewels? Who's got some bling? Nobody? You guys are broke. Who's got any? You got earrings. You got a necklace. You got a watch. Who's got something? Okay. I hope you do. If you don't have some, tell your man. Like, Yo, hook me up. Give me something, right? But imagine you have some jewelry. And one day you have, I don't know, a situation of need and whatever. And so all of a sudden you're like, well, I have some stuff. I got some gold, I got some silver, I got some platinum, you know, I'm going to put it together and I'm going to go sell it. And so you go to a jeweler and you say, hey, listen, I need some money and I got all of this. How much do you have? Two kilos. Well, that's a lot of money, right? You're like, I got two kilos of gold and a kilo. Oh, and so they weigh it. And yes, two kilos. And you're like, oh man, I'm going to get all this money. And he's like, but now we have to test it. Make sure it's the real thing. And so they test your gold and they realize it's not no 24 carat. It's not even one carat. And they test your silver and it ain't silver. It's just some fake metal. And you got no platinum. All your bling is fake. And the guy says, you do have two kilos, but you got two kilos of scrap metal. I'll give you 10 bucks. We, we can't even take that. How would you feel? If your whole life you thought you had real gold, real diamonds, real bling, how are you going to feel? You're going to be like, what? You're going to be disappointed, number one. Whoever gave me this, gave me a fake thing. I thought it was real, number one. But number two, you're going to be sad because guess what? You thought you had all this and you really have nothing. Why am I sharing this with you? Why am I giving you this example? That's how it will be for most of us when God weighs our works. You know, our works will be tested and weighed. Everything we do in this life will eventually be put on a scale. And after being put on the scale, it's going to be tested through fire. And anything that wasn't pure, anything that wasn't inspired by God, done by God, and for the glory of God, will be burnt up. And when it's burnt up, it won't have no weight in the scale. It won't have any value. And the only thing that will be left over when we're measured and when we're tried is the godly things. So the things that God put from eternity for us to do. That were done His way. With the right intentions. And for Him. And for His glory. Everything else will be burnt up. Now you might not think that right now. And so you feel like, well, I've done this for so and so. And I've helped here and so and so. And I've done this. But can I tell you, none of those things will matter. Because when we're judged and tried, the only thing that will matter will be the godly things that we do. And it might not be as many as we think. And you're going to realize, you know, this life, it seems like it's long. But the longer you live, you realize how short it is. I'm only 34. I'm not old by any means. But I'm already thinking, I'm like, dude, I'm almost 40. And if I double that, I'm 80. I might be gone by 80. Life's kind of going kind of quick. I'm already almost that half cycle. And, you know, and these are the best years. The older you get more limited you become and, and whatnot. Having said that, I start thinking, uh, this life is short. There's so much I can do in this life. 
And one of the things that I'm constantly reminded of by the Holy Spirit is eternity. This is my preparation and this is my tryout for eternity. And depending on the things that I do here will be the way I qualify and enter into eternity. That will determine my rank, my position, my rewards, and my crowns. It will determine the job that I have there. So I better do a good one here because guess what? Here I'm only going to be 70, 80 years. I don't know. But over there, I'm going to be there forever. And what I do here matters. Because what qualifies me? What gives me crowns? What are those eternal rewards that I'm going to receive? Is based on the good works or the godly things that I do here. Having said that, the closer you get to God, you realize that most of the stuff you do doesn't even matter. I don't mind having good things. I mean, I like them and I work for them. But they don't matter. And heaven's not going to matter what kind of car that I drive, how much it was, how big the house I lived in uh, was, and if I gave away. Because if it wasn't with the right motives, none of those things will matter. You get what I'm saying? And so one of the conclusions that you start arriving in being a worshiper is that without him, it's not worth it. That the only thing that really matters is his will. What does he want me to do? You say, I've always wanted to do this. And you do it and you realize it didn't fill you up. It didn't have any significance. It didn't transcend. But when you do the things that he said for you, those things fill you up. Those things make you come alive. Those things bear fruit here on earth and bring rewards, eternal rewards in heaven. That's why Jesus said, store up your treasure in heaven, not on earth. Do you, got, you get where I'm going with this? And so a true worshiper has arrived to this conclusion where you say, even though all of this is nice, it doesn't even matter. What's the point? I don't care too much. What I care about is the things that you want me to do because they are the things that truly matter. They are the things that will sustain the test of time. They are the things that will bring an earthly reward and a heavenly one. So you start investing most of your time, your attention, your focus, and your energy into those kind of things. People who are godly, I've usually, I will usually talk to them and they will say things like this. I want to retire early. I want to stop working. I'm trying to do this so I can devote myself to the ministry. So I can devote myself to the work of God. So I can devote myself to serving and going on missions. And I plan to do the same. Even though I serve God most of my time right now, by the time I'm 40 or 45, it's the only thing I want to do. Because I realize... That's what matters. I'm just, I'm trying to build some sort of foundation for me and my family for the next few years. But once that's established and we have enough freedom, I just want to devote all my time, all of my family, all of our resources to serving. Because I realize the earthly things don't matter. It's those things that matter. Do you get where I'm going with this? A true worshiper knows this. Number four, you also get to the conclusion where you realize your thoughts are better than my thoughts. You know, some people are really afraid of the will of God. Because sometimes God tells us things that we don't like. Or those things don't align to our plans. Those things don't align to our dreams. Have you ever had that fear? If you say no, you're probably lying. I've had it. I knew that saying yes to God was going to mean saying no to a lot of things that were important to me. And I was afraid. But the more I get to know God, I realize His plans are better than my plans. His dreams are better than my dreams. His future that he painted for me is better than whatever future I could paint for myself. You start arriving to this conclusion. So you start laying out your dreams, laying down your aspirations, laying down some of your goals and saying, God, if they're any good, use them. If not, I give them away. They don't matter. You don't have to do what I want. You come into a place of surrender. 
Isaiah 55, 8 to 11 says, For my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways so much higher than your thoughts and higher than your ways. So a true worshiper is one that knows that God's thoughts are higher. That God's dreams are higher. So now you're not looking to fulfill your own plans. You're not looking to fulfill your own ambitions. You're not here sitting trying to tell God what to do and pray for everything that's important to you. True worshiper gets to a place where God's, where you say, God, whatever you want. There's a song I like by Jesus Culture. It says, where you go, I'll go. What you say, I'll say. What you pray, I'll pray. That's the heart of a true worshiper. Because sometimes we say, God, show me your will. But in the end, God sees your heart and he knows you're not ready to do his will. That if he were to ask you for some things, you're going to say no. Or you're not going to say anything and just ignore it and keep going about your life. The true worshiper is one that's always willing to say yes. And so you got to arrive to the conclusion where his plans are better than your plans. Where his thoughts are better than your thoughts. And when his ideas are different than yours, you're willing to say, forget me. I'll do God. How do you get to that point? By closeness. You know, we do. Uh, my wife and I, she does something funny. So we go to a restaurant. Now we've been married for five years. So about this year, mid this year, she started doing something she never done before. Whenever we go to a restaurant, she says, order for me. And I say, why? Just because you know what I like better than what I think. It's like every time you tell me to order something, it's delicious. And every time I order something, I don't like it. It took her five years of being with me to realize I order better than she does. And now she trusts me. She says, I want this, but what would you order? And I said, I would think you like this better. And she gets it. And she's like, oh, this was perfect. It's a funny thing, but I feel like God knows what you like better than what you think. And so sometimes you're like, God, this is what I want. And God's like, that's not what you need. That's not going to be good for you. That's not convenient for you. And so when you get to that conclusion, you say, God, you pick for me. I want this, but if it's not what you want, you tell me what you want. I like this person, but if this is not the person you have for me, stay away from me, Satan. Right? Keep him away. You're not like, please, God, make it happen. Convince them. Give him a dream. Give him a vision. Listen, God doesn't have to convince anybody to be with you. He knows what you need. He knows who you need. He knows what's better for you. And instead of us trying to convince him, he's just saying, can you show me? This is what I think, but you're smarter than me. You're wiser than me. You have more experience than me. I don't know nothing. So this is my idea, God, but I lay it down for your idea. You get what I'm saying? True worshiper reaches that conclusion. Number five, true worshiper gets to a point where they realize the only thing that makes sense is to live life for him. The Bible says in the book of Romans 11, 36, it says, For everything comes from him, everything exists by his power, and is intended for his glory. Three things. We come, are you part of everything? I hope you are. No, I'm part of nothing. You're part of everything. Did you know that? Everything, including you, you come from God. You are sustained by his power. In other words, he made you, you're alive because he's keeping you alive. And you exist for the purposes of his glory. That's the truth. And so a true worshiper reaches this revelation where you realize the purpose of my life is to live it for him. 
It's not about me. It's not for me. It's for him. And so when you hit these conclusions is when you truly develop a heart of worship. Because now your life doesn't belong to you anymore. You give it over to him. Because your life is not about you, about your plans, about your dreams, about your hopes. It's about whatever God wants. You're in a total place of surrender. You get what I'm saying? The only thing that makes sense is to live for him. The Bible says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? You know, I've met so many people that have done so much with their lives. But in the end, in eternity, what's going to happen with them? And what did everything they do amount to? You know, in the Bible, there's a guy, John, John the Baptist. You heard of him? I mean, in my eyes, he didn't do much. Like, he walked around. He was wearing, like, camel skin for clothing. Probably didn't look too good. Camels don't look that nice. If you've seen a camel up close, they're kind of ugly. And they stink. But that was his wardrobe. You know what he ate? Locust. Uh, like, uh, grillos. Crickets, yeah. This guy ate crickets. Not impressive. The keg is better, I'm sure. Uh, you know. But he ate crickets. He had uh, camel's clothing. He just went around dunking people in water. Like, I baptize you. That's all. That was his greatest thing, just baptize people. Just put him in water. And he actually baptized our Lord Jesus Christ, which was a great thing. Probably the most significant thing he ever did in his life. But this is what Jesus had to say about him. Jesus said, you know, out of all the people who have ever lived, John the Baptist has been the greatest human being. He is the greatest out of all humans that have ever lived. Besides Jesus, of course. And he says, but in heaven, he's like the least. <laughs> That's funny. I think, because he's the, you know, in, in human view, he didn't accomplish much. As a matter of fact, he got murdered. They chopped his head off. So, it ain't, it's not like we're going to be, oh, John, you were, you, you were great. But he did everything that God wanted him to do. And before the eyes of man, he might have not done something significant. But before the eyes of God, he's the greatest person to ever live besides Jesus. And in heaven, he's a hero. You know, here we have statues of people. If you go around cities, there's always statues. They probably won't make a statue of you, out of, of you in heaven because uh, I don't think they like that. But uh, I will tell you this. There's some people who are going to be famous in heaven. The Bible says that when you live according to his plan and whatever he has for you, he will make you famous in heaven and feared in hell. That's crazy. Because you know what? You get man's glory. But listen, the same people who raise you up is the same people who crucify you. Jesus, they received them as triumphant king one weekend. Next weekend, they're crucifying him. Same people. The same people who talk good about you will gossip about you the next day. The same people who love you one day will go behind your back and destroy your life the next day. It's happened to me many times. So how does it, or what does it profit a person to get the glory of this world? It doesn't. The glory of this world and the, and the praises of people mean nothing. But did you know the things that you do, the godly things that you do are significant enough where they will be written in a book, where in the history books, and not on the earthly history books, but in the heavenly history books, which to me are more important, your name will be written on forever. Well, heaven will speak of you. Where God and his angels and the heavenly host and the, and the, and the heavenly beings will be speaking of you. And there's a cloud of witnesses that when you walk in, they're going to receive you and say, Yo, there's Licho. Man, can I get your autograph? That's how I want to walk into heaven. 
I don't want to walk in and be like, yo, who are you? Are you on the list? Oh, we barely found your name. You barely come in. Because the Bible says some people will make it like that, like passing through fire. I want to get up there and before I knock, they're like, dude, we were waiting for you. Come on in. We got this special plan. I want to be a VIP, man. And the way to do that is to live for him here. And so every other thing that we do doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Having said that, those are five revelations you need to have to have a pure heart of worship. How do you get there? Do you just one day wake up and say, the only thing that matters is to live for God? No. You build relationships, just like I did with my wife. You know what? Today, I don't want to live without my wife. As a matter of fact, it's hard for me to picture my life without my wife. But it would have never got there if I would have never lived with her. You know what I mean? At some point, I said, I don't want to live without her, so I asked her to marry me. But I would have never got there if we never dated, went out, went to a restaurant, had dinner, spent time together. So having said that, you don't just become a worshiper and a pure worshiper because you're so cool. You get there by looking for him, by seeking him, by building a relationship, by saying, God, I want to get to know you more. I want to love you more. Teach me to love you the way you love me. Teach me that, that, that I need you. Reveal to me who you are and your greatness and your goodness. And these are the songs we sing. But when they're more than songs, when it's your reality, when you realize he's the greatest being that ever lived. Imagine if, as a guy, well, most of you are married. Not bad example. You know what? <laughs> but I'll just throw it out there. Anyway. But imagine you just see, this, this is the most beautiful person you've ever seen. Man, they're good looking. They're wealthy. They're kind. They're generous. They're godly. I mean, they got absolutely everything you ever dreamed of. You know, you know it's a great relationship. And you know they're not going to reject you because they gave you the eyes, you know. You're like, man, I'm a, I'm a hot. <laughs> if you were single. <laughs> right? Why am I saying this? Because God is the greatest relationship you could ever have. He's the greatest being that has ever been and that there ever will be. He knows it all. He's capable of it all. He's limitless. He's powerless. His is the silver and gold. He owns the earth. He's incredible. And guess what? He wants to get to know you. He wants to not only be your friend, he wants to be your lover. He wants to show you things about you. He's not going to reject you, it's for sure. So why is it so hard to look for this relationship? It shouldn't be. You should jump right in. And the only reason or the only way that you get to that point where you want more and more and more is by taking the first step. This is why the Bible says, come near to God and he will draw near to you. So you take the first step. Just like if you ever saw that person that you like. This ain't no Tinder. You can't just swipe right and go sleep with him. It doesn't work that way. You invest. Take him out. Talk to him. Text him. Call him. You get what I'm saying? And you build that. Having said that, that's the heart of worship. Now, how do you do it in the natural? Because remember I said everything that's first spiritual manifest in the natural there's a couple of things that the bible mentions last week i gave you eight words hebrew words that mean praise right i'm going to give you a few hebrew and, 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 and greek words that mean worship a hebrew one uh, is shakar and shakar means to bow down before the lord it's like shakar oh dude s-h-a-c-h-a-h -H -H. shakar i'll give you the list after <laughs> but 
But what does it mean? It means to bow down before God. So when you feel that way, I love you, I want you, I need you. How do you manifest it? As a Colombian, you take flowers. You take serenata, right? It's cultural. Mexicans do the mariachi. You know how we do it in God's culture? You bow down. You say, God, I want you, I love you, I need you. How do you show that? You don't buy him flowers. You bow down. You go on your knees. And you lift your hands. You say, I need you. I want you. I don't want to be without you. You understand? Another thing that this means is to prostrate. So to prostrate is not only to bow down, but it's to lay flat on the floor with your face on the floor. Like, that's nasty. It doesn't matter. Cheek hit in the rug. Who walked there? What do you care? Wash your face after. Because that just means you're in total surrender. You know, if I point a gun to your head, I'm about to kill you, you're not going to be like, yo, I surrender, yo. You're not going to be like, no, what are you going to do? You're going to be like, is your... Right? Your body shows what you feel and what you're saying. You're like, take all my money. Take my money. The same is when we worship. What our spirit senses, we manifest with our lips and we manifest with our physical body. So one of the ways, bow down. Another one, we prostrate before him. Face flat, on the ground, straight uh, humbling yourself. The Bible says those that exalt themselves will be humble, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Bible says that every knee, how many? Every knee will bow. And every tongue shall confess. It doesn't say Christians will bow their knee. It says everyone. So you either do it because you want it or you do it by force. Did you ever see movies where, let's say, the king is coming by in the horse and all the people go down and there's one guy that stood up and the king's guards come and be like, Pah! and they beat that person to their knees? <laughs> I don't care if you want to do it or not. You will bow your knee. And it will be this. Every tongue and every person, save the not, will eventually have to recognize that he is the Lord. That his is the glory, the power, the praise, that he's a king. You understand? And so don't wait to get forced. Do it voluntarily. Lay down. Go on your face flat. That's how you approach God. One of the ways anyway. Another one is um, sagad, which is pronounced caged. But it also means to prostrate or to lay flat before God. Okay, so those are the same. I'm going to give you another one. Abad. A-B-A-D. That one's easier. Abad. And it means to serve. That's another way to worship, to serve. And what does it mean to serve? In, in Colombia, we have a saying, Mexicans do too, but in Colombia, uh, older people, when somebody asks, calls their name out or says something, they say, or they say, su merced. Which, what that actually meant, it comes from Spain, from the kingdom of Spain, and they used to say, a vuestra merced. And what that meant is, I am at your disposal. And used to say it to people in authority. Today, people just say it as a greeting, but it's kind of dumb. Uh, Mexicans say mande, right? So you, you approach a Mexican, and you're like, hey, man, and you're like, mande. Uh, but, but it's a good thing because it literally means tell me. Like, give me an order, right? Tell at your service. It's literally what it means. So it's a, it came from a good thing. Now we just, it just lost its meaning. But that's the right answer to God. 
Whenever you approach God, you got to say, mande. You got to say, a vuestra merced. In other words, at your service, my Lord. Because He is our King. And we're His servants. And we should never forget that. Yes, He's my friend. Yes, He's the lover of my soul. Yes, He's my... But He's my King. And I'm His servant. And I'm here for His glory. So when I approach God, we approach Him with a list of all the things we want Him to do. He's not your servant. We are His servant, which is different. As a servant in a palace, you get to enjoy the benefits of the palace. So servants in a palace usually eat the king's food. They dress with the king's clothes. And you know why? Because that represents the king. When people went to see Solomon, they knew it was a great kingdom because the servants had better clothes than the kings of other countries. They ate better than everybody else. And they're like, yo, this kingdom is great. Even look at the servants. And so God magnifies himself by doing us good. But we should never forget the only reason why we enjoy all this privilege is because we're the king's servants. And when a servant used to forget who the king was, he wasn't worthy of being in the king's presence. And they get cast out into a dungeon. I hope that never happens to you. But, uh, but we should always understand, I'm at your service, God. Yes, you eat off the king's table. Yes, you're in the king's palace. Yes, you get the royal wardrobe. And you get all the benefits of serving the king. But you're a servant. Do you understand? And so, to serve. In other words, you approach God and say, whatever you want. And God will ask you for things. Many times he'll ask you to give money to somebody. Many times he'll ask you to give somebody a ride. He'll ask you to go somewhere. He'll ask you to go on a missions trip. And guess what? Usually when he asks you to do something, it's going to be inconvenient. But at the end of the day, you say, God, I can't because, you know, I got this. I don't have gas. Question, whose gas is it? God, but it's the other way. They live north and I live in the deep south. Question, who, whose car is it? It ain't your car. It's the king's car. Everything in a kingdom belongs to the king. It doesn't belong to individuals. You get to use it, but it's his. And so anything that God asks me for, I say, well, it was yours in the first place. I'll just give it back to you. And he gives me the privilege to use it. You understand? So I always understand, you're at service, whatever he wants, whenever he wants it. By that, I'm going to mean like, oh, I serve in my church. No, it's when you approach God, say, God, what do you want? He will usually ask you for something. Um, and, and, that, and that's such a key thing to have. You know, Saul, uh, not Saul, what's this guy's name? Samuel, the prophet. When God starts speaking to him, he starts calling him in the night, Samuel. He didn't know how to respond. He never heard God before. So he goes to the high priest, which was supposedly a person who had the closest relationship to God. He's like, yo, somebody's calling me. He's like, listen, it's God. The next time he calls you, this is your response. And you're going to approach him and say, speak, my Lord, for your servant is listening. You know, the word Lord means master. So in other words, Samuel, what he taught him the right response before God. When God calls you, you know what you say? Speak, Master, whatever you want, I'm at your service. I'm listening. Okay? Proper way to worship. Another one. Proskuneo. That's in Greek. P-R-O-S-Q, or sorry, K-U-N-E-O. I'll give you a sheet later. Proskuneo. And what that actually means, means is to kiss. It's to lick. It's to show your affection It's what it's saying. So how do you worship God? You show affection. Imagine if I just walk up to my wife and I'll be like, yo, what? I love you. She'll be like, what the heck? 
do you love me or are you mad at me? Like, it'd be confusing. You know what I do, usually? I look at her dead in the eyes. I hold her cheek. Or I put my hand behind her. I hold her. And I'm like, I love you. I kiss her in the, in the forehead. I kiss her on the cheek. I kiss her on the lips. I embrace her. Sometimes I just bring her real close and I tell her in her ear. I whisper, right? And say, honey, I love you. So I'm not only saying it. Girls are about to like, oh my God. No, but I'm not only saying it. I'm communicating it with everything that I am. Does that make sense? How do you worship God? You express your love. And so, don't just say, God, I love you. You're everything to me. How do, you, how do you, maybe you can't kiss him physically, but send them kisses. Sometimes we sing songs in Spanish. Is one they say, I want to hug you. I want to kiss your feet. I want to lay at your feet, right? That's how you express love. And so with God, you also need to express your love. You need to express your, your you know, the, the, your desire to be with him, to be around him, to embrace him, to get to know him, to be able to see him. Even though those things are not happening right now. You need to let him know that's what you want. You know, my wife used to live in Colombia. Thank you, dude. My wife used to live in Colombia. And uh, we used to go on FaceTime. And uh, we used to talk like into the night. And then we'd fall asleep. Before we were married, we were just dating. And she'd pass out, you know, and I'd pass out. And I'd wake up like at 3, 4 in the morning and she's snoring on camera. <laughs> and I'd think like, oh my God, she's, I'd think like, oh man, it's so cute. You know, I, even though I'm not physically there with her. We're bonding, we're sharing, we're spending this time together. So God, he might not be in the physical aspect as close as we would like. We can't physically sense him. But he's closer than you think. Because he is like that phone call away. A prayer away. You know, and, so, and so manifest your love that way. You know, when my daughter calls me on the phone, uh, she calls me multiple times throughout the day. And she says, give me a kiss. And of course I can't kiss her because she's not there. So what do we do? She comes in and kisses the camera, right? The phone's camera. And I go like that too. So it's not the real thing, but it's a sign that that's what I want to do. Do the same thing with God. Show him your affection. Show him your love. Show him, you know, I want to embrace you. I want to hug you. I, you know, do that. You get where I'm going with it? Another one. It's semohi. And it's a, it's a weird spelling, but it's S-E-B-O-M-A-I. And it means to revere or reverence. That's another form of worship. Reverence. Reverence is, is a respect. So how do you adore God or, or how do you worship God? You show him reverence. I'll give you an example. If you have a meeting with an important person, you don't get there late. You have a job interview. Yo, I'm 20 minutes late. And I didn't shower. And I got lagañas or I got eye boogers. Like, you're not going to do that. You're going to get up early. You're going to get ready. You're going to do your hair. Why? Because it's an important person. That's reverence. You know, when in my country, I remember I went to school in Colombia a couple of years. And when a teacher entered the room, the main teacher would tell everybody, get up and greet this teacher. So we'd all stand to our feet and be like, hello, Mrs. whatever, whatever it is. Here in, in North America, they don't teach reverence the way they do, at least in my country. Their children are not taught that. They thought everybody's equal. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says older people are superior. It says to respect the gray hairs. So in other words, people of, of age. The Bible also teaches us to honor and respect, respect rank. In other words, 
positions that God has given people because it is God who gives those positions. So anybody in authority, anybody older, a parent even, a grandparent, you treat them with reverence and respect because of the position that God gave them. And if God asks us to do that with people, imagine how much more so we should do that with God. And so some people, it, it's, it's time for worship, congregational worship, and you're texting. That's not reverence. You're sitting on your butt. That's not reverence. We're praying, and everybody's praying, and you're talking, or doing your thing, or you didn't stop. That's not reverence. Even in my house, sometimes I'm doing something, and people sit at the table, and they're going to pray. And even if I'm not sitting down with them, I'll stop, and I'll go like this. And I'll wait until they finish praying to continue doing whatever I'm doing because I'm reverent or I'm respectful to the fact that they're calling out on God. You get what I'm saying? We need to be reverent in worship, in praise, in congregational setting. Reverence is important. You know, I, I hear some people calling God, dude, homie, chucho. Like, what is that, bro? He's your king. He's almighty God. So I call him, I wouldn't call him anything different than what Jesus called him. Abba, Father, Lord. You see, I usually don't even say Jesus. I, you will most of the time, 80% of the time you'll hear me say Lord Jesus. Because even though, yes, I can call him Jesus, he is my Lord. He's my king. I call him King Jesus, Lord Jesus. Right? Because his reverence, his respect. When my dad calls me, I don't say, what's up, bro? You know, I say in Spanish usually, because my dad's Spanish, I say, si, senor. They teach us that. Hispanic people usually say that, which means, yes, Lord. Right? It's reverence. So, towards God, one of the ways to worship is to be, to understand who he is. He's not your buddy, he's not your homie, he's your king. He's your master. That he is friendly to you. My dad is friendly to me, and we're friends. But beyond that, he's my father. He's also my pastor. In some ways, he's my boss. So I understand his superiority. Do you understand? Even though we have a good friendship. So to revere God is one of the ways to worship him. Another one, we're almost done with this. Is um, latrio. And what it means is to, to minister. So you minister unto the Lord. You know, that's what priests did, ministered to the Lord. They brought offerings. They brought prayer. They would burn incense. In other words, they would do things that were pleasing unto God. You know, you're a minister of God. The Bible says you're kings and priests. And our job is to minister to the Lord thing uh, or minister to him as well. We minister to him in song, in worship, in adoration, by bringing gifts. There's different ways to minister to the Lord. To just bless him. To sit down and thank him. That's how you minister his heart. That's one of the ways to properly worship. And this is why sometimes we put down the music or the lights. And they're going with the melody. And we stop singing. And we say, bless the Lord. Minister to the Lord. Sing a new song. That's just you ministering God. Just how God ministers to you sometimes. And he says, you're my beloved son. You're my daughter. I'm with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You know, and you're ministered through worship. You need to minister to the Lord back. So you're my all. You're my king. You're awesome. You're amazing. You understand? That's one of the ways to worship. 
Another one is uh, therapio. And what that means is to minister to others. So one of the ways you, you worship God is by serving others with whatever he gave you. So you have gifts, talents, abilities. As a matter of fact, you have things you receive by grace. You give them by grace. For example, is anybody in this room saved? Are you saved? Okay, so if you didn't raise your hand, you're going to hell? No, okay, you're saved. You receive salvation by grace and faith. Did you know it's not your job to get other people saved? That's how you worship God. If God has healed you, go heal the sick. If God resurrected you, saved you from death, go help somebody else, heal somebody. If God provided for you, go provide for someone. We give by grace what we have received by grace. That is a way to worship. It's not to worship when you just say, oh, God's so good to me. He's so nice. He gave me this. He gave me that. What do you do for us? Nothing. You're not reflecting his nature and his image. Do you understand? And the last thing I want to teach you with this is to give. To bring to him. That is one of the ways to worship. And one of the main ways to worship in scripture is to give God presents and to give God offerings. To give to God is to worship Him. I'll give you an example. Whenever I go to see my parents, they live in Toronto. Whenever I fly over, before I leave, I usually go shopping. You know what I buy? Gifts for my parents. Why? I don't know. It's just there. I'm grateful to them. I love them. I'm thankful of everything they've done for me. And when I see them, I want to show up with a good gift. I don't know if you know this, but Royal Protocol... So if you ever went to meet the queen, which is now deceased, so you would see the king. But if you ever had an opportunity to meet with the king, did you know that it is an obligation to bring a present? And you will not be allowed into their chambers or to meet with them without a, a not only a present, a proper present. Did you know historically and culturally, the kind of present you gifts tells others the kind of person you are? In other words, the present not only speaks of the person you're giving it to, it speaks about who you are. So to show, for example, when a king visited another king, they would take so many gifts. They would take, like for example, if you read uh, about Solomon, the queen Bathsheba, she came with so many gifts. She came with gold and with camels and with servants and with, and with uh, just so many things. And the Bible says that she left saying this kingdom is great because Solomon, when she left, he gave her like triple of whatever she brought him as a gift. So this guy's insane. So the kind of gift you give speaks about the nature of the giver, about the kind of person that you are and the greatness of the person. That's why it is in our nature to give good gifts. And if it's not your nature, you better check yourself before you break yourself. God, then so whenever we're getting a gift, for example, you want to impress a girl, you want to get married, you don't try to go buy the cheapest thing. You know, you don't go to Dollarama. It's like, yo, yeah, just stop by Dollarama real quick. I stop by the Goodwill to get you something nice. That'd be terrible. Maybe I would buy myself something from there, but I wouldn't gift my wife something from there. And not for a birthday, for a special occasion. I try to get good things. Why? Because I'm telling that person how important they are to me. And I'm telling them the kind of person that I am. You understand? 
And so one of the ways to worship is you give gifts to God. Good things. Great gifts. There's a guy in the Bible, his name's David, man after God's own heart. One time, God wanted him to come into his presence and, and to build an altar. So David is getting ready a sacrifice to go and lay at the altar. And a guy comes out and he says, David, I, I want to help you do this, man. I'm just so thankful with you and to God that I'll give you the land. I'll give you the place for the sacrifice. And I'll give you all the animals for the offering. Great proposal, right? You'd be like, oh, thank God. The Lord provides. But check what David said. He said, thank you. Well, he didn't say like I'm paraphrasing, but but he says this, which is amazes me. He says, I will not give to the Lord a sacrifice that did not cost me anything. This is the man after God's own heart, and you understand why. Because a good gift costs you. It's a sacrifice. In the Bible, God constantly speaks of sacrifice. Sacrifice is not giving what's your leftover and what you don't need anymore, or what you don't want. Sacrifice is to give something that hurts you. It takes from you. It, it lessens you. You know, sometimes when they're mentioned about going somewhere, or doing something, and you really want to go where it's important, you're like, you know, it, it's tough. I don't have the money, but I'll make the sacrifice. What are you saying? I'm going to make the extra effort and go the extra mile to do what you're asking, right? That's also a way to worship. And not only is it a way to worship, it's one of the main ways to worship. As a matter of fact, that's probably more referenced in the Bible than many other forms or many other ways. We give to God. And so what can you give? You can give Him your time. You can give Him your gifts. You can give so many things. But also bless the Lord with what He has given you. Finances, increases. When you see that God is doing something in a place or there's a work getting started or whatever, sow into it. You know, sow things for the ministry. Not only in the church you go to, but in other ministries and missions trips and things and people. That's one of the ways to worship the Lord. You say, I am gifting. And it's costing. It's hurting. That's how you know it's a good gift. You know, my dad barely asks for anything. And sometimes like, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for your birthday? What do you want for... He's like, I don't know. I have everything I want. It's a nice thing to say. I, I can't think of anything that I want. But very oddly, he will say... I wish I had one of those. And he usually doesn't ask for it. He'll just mention it like out of the blue, like a random time through the year. And if we ever hear that, we take notes and we call, we're all brothers, so we call each other up and, hey, I just heard my dad say he wants the new iPad Pro, you know, or whatever it is. And we'll call each other and we'll start talking. And then we start coming up with a plan where like, his birthday's coming up. Why don't we get that? Oh, but it's a few thousand bucks. Well, how much can you pitch in? How much can you give? How much... You know, and we kind of start pooling together and talking about, and usually whatever it is that he wants, it is kind of expensive. But we make every effort to get him what he wants. Do you know why? One, we love him. Two, we're so proud of him. Three, we're super grateful for everything he's done in our lives. Four, we want to honor him. We want to bless him and tell him how much he means to us. And so we, get, we try to give him the best, not cheapest. Like, yo, let's see if we can get the refurbishment now. Right? That's a dad that's made mistakes and it's a human. Imagine God. And so that's, you know, and the Bible says where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. 
So you will know. When you are a cheerful giver, the Bible says God loves that. When it hurts to give, check your heart. Because somebody who's truly grateful, proud, and wants to bless and honor will give with joy and with ease, even though it's a sacrifice. You understand? And I, and I, and I will say this in, in brackets. When I'm talking about these gifts, I'm not talking about tithes. Because tithes is almost like we have a partnership. 10% is his, 90% is mine. I give to God what is God's. I don't belong to me. So I, I'm not giving him anything by giving him back what belongs to him. If I don't give it to him, I'm robbing him. But offerings is different. That's taking part of my chunk and saying, hey, listen, I want you to keep more of this partnership because you've been so good, because you're amazing, because I love you. I want to give you something on top. Do you understand? Cool. So those are the ways that the Bible teaches us to worship. You saw that none of them, hey, let's talk about singing. We can't do it through song. But the main thing that this is showing us is an attitude of the heart. So just to wrap it up, when should I worship? Well, do it all the time. You know, live a life of worship, a lifestyle of worship, a lifestyle that tries to honor him and watch for him and, and bless him and, and something that makes him proud of seeing you, you know. But, in, but there's specific times that the Bible calls us to, to make an altar and to, and to do like a special thing where we worship in a special way. You know, something that is distinguished. Uh, when you go to his house, when you go to the temple or when you go to his altar. Okay. It's one of the main ones. The Bible says, do not come to his house or into his altar with empty hands. So anytime you go to a Lord's house, bring a gift. Anytime you approach the Lord in a, in a ceremony or a, or, a, or a communal celebration, in other words, when the people of God are gathering to celebrate God, you bring a gift into his house. Okay? Number one. And that's kind of why, let's say, every weekend we say, okay, tithes and offerings, right? Whoever wants to bring a gift. Some people do it randomly. You should make a habit of doing it continuously because it's a celebration. You're coming to thank him for everything he did. Number two, do it when in a time of need. When you're in danger, when you're facing a difficult situation where, where you don't know what to do, when you're desperate, it's a time to go build an altar and it's in, in, in worship. Okay? And so in the Bible, we see that they did this by fasting, by prayer, by burning sacrifice or animals or by bringing gifts, right? Or by setting their, their, themselves aside and they would go and seek God like Moses in the mountain or Abraham that met with the Lord, you know. Like that, they would go away and, and look for God in a very uh, specific way. Like that, that would be a distinguished time because they were in a, in a time of need, in a time of mourning. They would, the Bible says that they would throw themselves on the ground, rip their clothes off. They would take ashes from the ground and put those ashes on, which is, was, was one of the ways to say like, I'm dirt. I need you. When they were in the face of battle, when they were threatened, when they were going through situations like that, you that's when you worship you know just face down face flat you humble yourself you acknowledge that you need him you understand so if you're ever in a time like that go worship deep worship another one to get direction so when it's a crucial time in life you're not necessarily in a bad place but you just need to make a key decision you really need to know and you're about to make a decision that it's important, go worship. Build an altar. Take a gift. Serve. Postrate yourself. 
do something, do, do, do a more significant kind of worship, right? Prolonged period of worship, a day, two days, whatever. Set yourself aside to make a key decision and do that. To get direction from the Lord. That's another way. Another key time to worship is in victories. When God grants you victory, it's a key time to worship for a special kind of worship. So what are victories? Let's say you were facing battle or you're in a difficult situation or whatever, and the Lord came through and he did something for you. That's a time of celebration, and it's a time for worship. So do something that commemorates God. In our family, we have the custom, and I'll tell you why later, but uh, we have the custom of going out to dinner. So whenever we have a victory, whenever something good happens, we all meet up anywhere. We'll go on vacations or we'll meet somewhere. We'll all fly to Toronto. Or, or sometimes they're over there and we're over here and we FaceTime each other. And we have dinner. We prepare a big dinner. Uh, you know, we, we worship, we pray, we honor God, and we eat dinner together. Because that's one of the Bible, that's one of the ways that the Bible teaches us to celebrate victories. So the whole family gathers around and we speak about the victory of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God. We thank God for it and we celebrate by sharing a meal together. That's one of the ways we do it. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But you celebrate those victories. So what kind of victories? Well, whenever God came through, you saw a miracle, you were in the face of battle, you were expecting or you prayed for something and, and it happened, God did it, that's a victory. Another time, uh, or other kind of victories is weddings are victories before God. There are times of celebration. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, they used to do it for seven days. Not only like just a couple hours, but you do it for an entire week. And part of that celebration was bringing an offering. It's like the first fruits. You bring a good gift to God because you're saying, God, I'm giving you something to bless. It's a seed. Right? And if you give the first fruits to God, He's going to bless the remainder. And so a wedding is a big celebration. It's one where you present your first fruits, where you bring, you, you, do, a, you do something significant for God and you celebrate it. Another one is the birth of a child. When a child is born, you're, you were supposed to commemorate him or consecrate him to the Lord. And the way you had to do that, you had to bring him into the temple and you throw a party. Basically, you buy food for everybody. You invite everybody. You give a good offering to the priest and to the, and to the temple, right? So you bring an offering. You celebrate. You praise with your friends. You buy a meal for everybody. And we're going to do that soon with Judah. <laughs> but that's, that's a way to say, to worship God for the person that he brought. Because children mark seasons also. Not only for a family, but for a group of people, for a community. You know, those kinds of victories. So if you've seen breakthroughs in your life, miracles, if God answered a prayer, if you started a business, if you just graduated, do, do something significant, right? Do a, a special kind of worship to the Lord. Those are special times in people's lives. How do you know they're special? Because you're going to remember and you're going to talk about them for forever. For the rest of your life. You're going to talk about it with your friends. You're going to talk about it with your family. So when you remember it, you just don't remember that the miracle happened. you got to remember how you praise God for it. That's how significant it's got to be. I remember where you went, what you did, what you gave. It's got to be significant. You understand? And lastly, you got to worship in the times that he established to worship. Sacred times. In the Bible, there's these things called feast. And the Lord said, those are perpetual perpetual means forever he says you and your children got to do them for generations to come and not only you but the foreigners and the people that come from other cultures or whatever make them celebrate it too what are some of those times pentecost is one of them um, passover is another one feast 
Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Tabernacles. These are the feasts of the Lord. And so as Christians, we are so used to celebrating Christmas and Easter and things that God never asked us to celebrate. But there's other things that he did. And I, and I don't have anything against you meeting with your family, having a Christmas dinner. No, it's okay. But celebrate the times where God said, listen, come together as a family. Come together with the people. These are important times. Remember me. Celebrate me. Bring me an offering. Whenever he established those times, make sure you do it. Because they're important to God. They should be important to us. There's been very few times where my dad has called all of us as sons. And he said, hey, sons. For example, for his 50th, he said, I'm turning 50. And I want everybody to be here. I want everybody to be with us. There's another time the other day he said, we're going to do this retreat. And I want the whole family needs to be here. Very few times that he's asked us all to be there. And I lived here. My brother's living in California. JP lives in California. But whenever my dad said that, it doesn't matter what we're doing, where the church is at, where our business is at, where our lives are at. Drop everything. And you say, dad, we'll be there. It doesn't matter. We never said, oh, how much are the tickets? I'll see if I can fit it into my schedule. We just do it. Because barely ever did he say, this is important to me. I need you to be here. So when he does, we take that very seriously. And there's very few times in the year, I think it's only seven, that God said, this is an important time. I need you to be here. And I need you to build an altar. And I need you to worship. So if he asks you to do it, why not? Do you understand? Those are times to worship. So worship is offering our lives as an act of respect and love to God. It is the willingness to exalt God and yield to His will. We can never comprehend all that God is. But the more we worship Him, the more we love Him. And the more we love to worship. He reveals Himself to us in the midst of our worship. Do you want to love God like you never loved Him before? Worship Him. Seek Him. The more you seek Him, there's a song actually that says that. The more I seek you, the more I find you. And the more I find you, the more I love you. <laughs> but the more I seek you, the more I find you. The more I find you, the more I love you. And the more you love him, the more surrender you live in. That's a worshiper in spirit and truth. Amen.